Hey, welcome to Fearless Paranoia, where we are seeking to demystify the complex world of cybersecurity. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I'm Ryan. I'm a cybersecurity architect. And we are here for part two of our episode on artificial intelligence. And we'll put the caveat right at the front. It's We're specifically talking about generative AI, the stuff that actually exists right now. There's a lot we could do about uh, general AI and things we could tell you is amazing and scary. But if you really want to know about how the potential positive and negative side of artificial intelligence just set up two screens and on one screen show Star Wars, on the other screen show 2001. I think really you run the gamut between C-3PO and HAL as to the potential benefits and the potential downside of general AI. But we're not talking about that. This is going to be sort of the utopia episode. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about how these generative AI systems came to be. Why have we been striving to build these systems? For what purposes? And what are some of the things that we think we can help and solve using these systems in the future? And there's a lot that I know about this subject, but almost all of that includes an asterisk next to it that says, confirm with Ryan before you tell anybody. So to start this episode off, I'm going to hand it over to Ryan. Ryan, tell us a little bit about why we are where we are at with AI and what that means. Well, this is kind of the next evolution of our embracing of technology as an everyday part of our lives. 30, 40 years ago, homes were just starting to get personal computers. People were just starting to kind of do those basic things, word processing and uh, general, like running your taxes through or God forbid, those early day Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> Later on, we ended up increasing our computing power a lot. We became a lot more capable, you know, instead of just playing solitaire. Now we were playing sweet video games and things. Dune 2, by the way, I'm just going to go ahead and throw in a promo there for Dune 2. Everyone talks about Command and Conquer and everyone talks about Warcraft. I want to go one step earlier, Dune 2. You, you mean Dune 2000, the old video game? Dune 2000 was the remake of Dune 2, my wow. friend, and you know that very well. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's great. But the internet opened up a lot for us. That was kind of the next big phase, right? So computing could only get so far being in everybody's homes. We had to get to a point where we'd say, well, what happens if we connect all this stuff together? We've got all this power. So we had the early days. Obviously, it was all dial-up modems. Everything was very slow. We, it was a very slow adoption into how we kind of did this interconnected age. But then we got faster internet. We continued to find ways to open up those pipes. Now we got to a point where we can deliver services. We can even stream movies and things across the internet. But we got to a point where we started to kind of hit that mass again. So now we've gotten to the point where the internet can move as fast as we can effectively. As fast as we can come up with a question, we can key it into Google, we can hit search and bam, those results are right there. So like the internet moves now at our speed. It doesn't move slower. It's right there with us. So now the next evolution is, well, how do we go bigger and better? And it's either we build bigger hardware and we start doing bigger local processing or we don't need bigger pipes to the internet. We need bigger internet services. And so now we start looking for all of these services out here that are offering us benefits, especially in like the collaboration space and a bunch of these out like the media space where there's just lots of content and lots of things popping up from time to time. And we find ways to add to this and how to make it better and how to make it faster and how to make it more effective and how to analyze it. Data analytics has become a huge thing in the last 10, 15 years. Imagine what we can do if we can process data analytics even better and use the full computing capabilities that we've developed to really dive through that. And this is where it's kind of led us with AI is now we've gotten to the point of finding ways to automate all of these technologies. And this is where it's led us. And just a quick jump in to remind you that 
This episode, we're talking about the potential promise of these AI systems. Next episode is going to be the peril of AI systems. And I assure you that what Ryan just discussed there has a boatload on both sides. I will remind you that any technology that can be used to monitor can be used to surveil. Any technology that can be used to track can be used to oppress. We you know, need to keep that in mind at all times. But we're going to be talking about the promise side of it. And I want to bring one interesting kind of visualization that I just had, Ryan, when you were going through that, is talking about the evolution of the way we've approached the internet. And I look at search engines going from finding a response to your input, which was primarily, you know, a single or maybe two or three keywords. You type in a keyword, the best search engine is going to bring up the most relevant response. The next evolution of that was you ask a question and it locates the answer or a series of answers or things that are close that may answer your question. So instead of just looking for one response, it's actually trying to understand what you're asking and bring you the response. The stage we're in now is instead of bringing you the potential answer, it's telling you the answer. You ask it a question, it answers it. In every one of these steps, we're always looking at a progression towards perfection. It's like calculus. When you approach a limit, that just means that you are getting as close to it as you possibly can, knowing you'll never touch it. You are never going to get the perfect answer to a question. Just like no website was ever going to be able to answer your question directly, unless your question was, what website with this name has this information on this page? You know, unless that's the question you're asking. If you're asking, how long does it take to cook a steak? It's going to bring you a bunch of answers, but it's never going to bring you the perfect answer to that question, whether it's because they can't find the perfect answer or because that question as framed can't be answered perfectly. Because as anyone who's cooked steak knows, well, what kind of cast iron pan are you using? Are you broiling it or are you, you know, putting the cast iron pan on the grill? Because Lord knows, please, God, the perfect steak does not ever cook over an open flame. Just, let's just agree there. But all those things it's a, it's a progress towards perfection. And that's a, kind of an interesting visualization. So the search engine aspect of this technology, you know, of all the other uses that are available, does give us kind of the clearest look into what our existing capabilities are versus where we want to be. Just so everyone knows, because you can't see this, Ryan is nodding his head in agreement, which is about the strongest form of affirmation that, that Ryan gives to pretty much anything. So I'm feeling pretty good right now. So Ryan, let's talk about what the goals that some of these companies have, why are they developing these specific tools? Well, and I think part of that comes down to they're developing it because they can and because the technology is coming online. But I think what it is, is it's just an attempt to look at this as a, a new technology and finding ways to adapt it into current processes. And so the big things we're seeing is they're finding ways to use this tool to provide better outputs, faster outputs that still maintain the same level of integrity, finding ways to reduce costs, whether that means using this to reduce time to market or reduce the amount of labor required to go into it or the amount of R&D required to go into it by doing testing and validation using a tool like this. They're finding all sorts of creative ways to use this tool to drive efficiency inside of business processes. And I think businesses, as long as there's a significant value to be added out of this and the cost of generating that value or integrating that value doesn't outweigh the benefits that are going to come with it. I think as long as we see this tool remain efficient and open-ish source, I think we'll see uh, a lot of adoption of these type of technologies by the business community and by anyone else that can really find those type of benefits from it. 
You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. Well, and that's one of the things I'm going to talk about a bit in our next episode when we talk about the perils as it comes to regulation, because I think one of the things you mentioned there is very crucial, that chat GPT-3 and 3.5 were large language models that had their models publicly available-ish, right? The algorithm was largely made public, and the at least a summary of the knowledge that was input was largely made public. But chat GPT-4, which at this the time of this podcast is their current flagship version that is available to the public. It's not even fully available, but it's usable by certain people, is closed. We do not have access to the algorithm. We do not have access to the inputs. We do not have access to the rules that were placed on the reviewers. And interestingly, as it took, what, five years for OpenAI to come up with the basic model that they published and then came up with their third version, and within six months of that version three, they have a version four with an intervening model in between, which means this process is increasing in speed. So as we move forward, we're seeing all these kind of systems. We talked about visual generative AI generating images through inputs where you can effectively have thousands of different types of artwork and other images plugged in and based on, again, the values they were given. We can't set this aside. It's not like we're sitting the computer in front of a million screens, clockwork orange style, and exposing this computer to images with no context. The context is given based on the values provided by the reviewers as the data is being input. But then based on that data, these images are being generated of high quality. And, you know, you can do an incredible amount with them. There were, you know, a a recent copyright case where a graphic novel was created using generative AI for the images. Setting aside the copyright dispute, one of the fascinating aspects of that is people who are capable of telling a good story and I like to pretend that I am, Ryan, as a Dungeons & Dragons DM, you are considerably more capable of forming those than I am. You are remarkably good at that for someone who is a computer nerd. But being able to create the story, but if you are like me, functionally incapable of creating the artwork, that's a resolution. So among those things, the potential we have to minimize the gap between a person who's handicapped and a person who's not using these tools is phenomenal. You know, someone who may not be able to functionally speak, but who is capable of the concept of conversation. Ryan, after we were in middle school, we both knew a kid who was had a severe case of cerebral palsy. I don't know if I've seen better, comp- I mean, this is what, we're talking 1992. I don't know if I'd seen better computer-generated artwork than what this kid could create in minutes. And you know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to use his name on here because I don't think that's appropriate. But you know what I'm talking about. And you communicated with him using sign language. He was clearly intelligent and capable of conversation. But speech was not available. These kind of tools turn the imperfect and almost magical seeming powers that existed for nobody. You're giving voice to someone who can't speak. The potentials and the potential outcomes of these tools are 
life altering. You're doing the same thing for anyone that's, you know, not capable of hearing. All they have to do is have a device close enough to hear the voices being spoken around them, and then it just generates the text on the screen that they can now read. I mean, just even something that simple. That's not even really AI technology, but that's a big part of the input side of a lot of it. It's a matter of finding, you know, finding ways to take this technology and yeah, provide quality of life benefits. And uh, this one has a lot of potential for that. And we're talking about everything, you know, from cancer detection. Now, again, we have to remember that what we're really talking about here is this is not a system of general AI. We're talking about given past experiences, what can we learn? So by plugging in 50,000 de-identified, good Lord, I hope, de-identified records of a certain type of cancer, including what it looks like at its earliest possible stages, you potentially create amazing potential for early detection for cancer. You know, for other types of problems in manufacturing, you know, when you've got a long history of understanding how something functions, you can potentially eliminate or dramatically reduce malfunction by knowing what all the warning signs are. And it no longer becomes that you have the one guy who's been on the line for 30 years and knows exactly what a certain change in sound means for the changing of the line. You don't necessarily need to have that one super experienced person there anymore to diagnose a potential problem based on something that they remember. What are some of the other really interesting potentials that you see in some of this generative AI and not even necessarily generative AI, but the current AI models that we're using. In the business world, there's a ton of them. Everything from all sorts of task and process automation, those are huge pieces. Something in the cybersecurity space we already use some limited AI for is just even things like advanced level runbooks. So we've got detections built out in some of our different tools. We pull in log sources, which effectively is like our building of a large language model. We're building a large data set to work from. Then we build analytics to look for and identify those anomalies. And then we build remediative actions to set up that trigger based on a certain level of those anomalies being detected and it generates mitigative action against those. So realistically, that's us employing technology. It's not effectively artificial intelligence. I wouldn't go so far as saying it's intelligent. It's doing what we've instructed it to do, but it continues to work and it continues to expand its own ability to do so by producing more and more data sets. And in some cases, it is able to produce detection on new anomalies from just some of the adjustments and scoping to how it deals with those data sets. Going into the other side of the business world, so like dealing more with direct business units, you've got the ability to impact the creative space a lot from your marketing teams, being able to generate content readily and effectively. The people that are like social media marketers, managers, content producers, they're going to be able to leverage this a lot to produce new and, well, I wouldn't necessarily call it all new content, I guess, but they're going to be able to use this to produce engaging content that's going to be able to run through sets of analytics and find content which is more directly engaging based off of those analytics and those metrics. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. I'm 
intrigued by this possibility. Now that apparently all the streaming services have decided that this whole concept of advertising free viewing experiences were a nice novelty, but now that they've got you hooked, they're just going to go ahead and start showing ads. Are you actually saying, Ryan, that there's a possibility that the vast majority of the ads could actually turn out to be entertaining or at least entertaining based on what ChatGPT thinks is entertaining? I think there's a good chance that they're going to turn out to be slightly more effective advertising as far as <laughs> finding ways to get the responses from us as the consumers that they want. Well, and I think that is one important thing is that it's most of these uses for the foreseeable future. We're not talking about eliminating the human component of it unless you just want bad versions of what you were getting before. I'm going to use a real life example. Let's say you run a website that reviews things, technical things, and you employ a bunch of people who write those reviews. And then you discover that there is an AI chatbot that will write reviews for you. The bottom line is that the jobs that these would be replacing, if they're replacing jobs, are jobs that weren't being done by people who are highly skilled to begin with, unless you are willing to lose the capabilities that the highly skilled people bring with them. You know, you're not going to get a well-written version of a review because a well-written version of the review requires a report on a personal experience. If you're reviewing something and you haven't directly interacted with it, you're never going to be able to write that personal experience. And anyone whose job it was to pump out reviews based on reading other people's reviews, we're not doing a high-skilled job in the first place. So those are jobs that I consider to be more replaceable. Now, if you are going to do that and you are said review company and you're looking to save money that way, you at least want to hire someone to read them to make sure that they're factually accurate, which this unnamed review company did not and still has not done. Longer in the distance, what kind of big things do you look forward to from these AI systems? Well, I think there's a lot of potential. And as we're specifically talking kind of about the generative AI systems, I think there's the ability for us to get clear, more accurate, and more up-to-date information in front of people a lot quicker would be a huge one, just because it's able to consolidate, depending on how you've got your scope set for your inputs, You'd be able to consolidate a lot of data sources to really produce those good inputs. I think that there's the ability that we can start seeing educational system improvements from stuff like this, because realistically, you could produce different styles of testing and different styles of vetting that would go away from kind of the standard testing models we've always had in the past and could cater those testing and those the vetting of that knowledge transfer in a way that's a little bit more catered to the individual students and the individual consumers. So you'd get a more tailored end user experience because this will be able to on the fly make those type of adjustments and cater those outputs directly for that end user. I think especially as the end users start to engage more and more with these, one of the natural inputs is going to be what's the user's response to the outputs that they're receiving from this system. And it will start to use that in that kind of circular theory to start, you know, improving the outputs so that they're more acceptable or more tailored to what the user is kind of expecting. And because of that, that's got profound effects on everything from, again, marketing to sales. I think that there's some of these departments like sales is going to start seeing, I think, uh, some severe direct impacts to their entire market because this right here is going to be able to produce equivalent sales material. It's going to be able to generate leads quicker. It's going to be able to write custom engagements that are tailored specifically for their user base in a way that no single sales professional as great as they are would be able to pull off manually. Of course, and the funny thing is, is we realize, you know, HubSpot has been doing that largely for small creative businesses for a while. So when we're talking about a lot of this stuff, most of it is not a generational leap. We're not talking about regular humans to X-Men leap here. We're talking about taking, I mean, it 
maybe a slightly quicker step, but it's still just the next step. At its core, it's a tool. It's still a tool. The internet's a tool. AI is a tool. This is all meant to improve the human experience. And until we get to something like what we were kind of alluding to earlier with more like a general AI where it's more standalone and where it has its kind of its own concerns, this is effectively like anything else in computing. It's input and it's output and it's controlled by us. And so it just, it needs to be viewed as that generative AI in and of itself is not going to be the thing that's going to take over the world. It's a tool used to enhance our own experience and our own capabilities. So it's not going to turn someone into a superhero, but it is going to make what they do get done faster and slightly better. It's just small improvements. As we said before, we're not replacing everybody with robots. We're turning everybody into cyborgs. That's all the time we have for this episode of Fearless Paranoia. Tune in next week because we're going to have the dark and foreboding episode where we talk about the problems and potential perils with the existing versions and the direction we're going with LLMs and generative AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us. You can do so on any one of your favorite podcasting apps or systems. Please follow us on social media and share us with anyone who you feel could benefit from this information. For example, this episode will be ideal to send to someone who is nothing but doom and gloom about the prospects and potential of AI. Please tune in next week. If you have any suggestions or thoughts on any other topics you'd like to see or like to hear us address on the show, please send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or you can send us a message on any one of our social media platforms. On behalf of Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>